we started last week. Chris uh, has preached the first two. He's done a, done a very uh, admirable job on that, very good job on that. And here's a very quick summary of where we are because I think it's important for you to uh, know, uh, to, to just recall and remember, refresh your minds. Oh, yes, that's right. That's what we were talking about. And the first thing, in the, in the first message, uh, Chris talked about godly character. Uh, uh, he said that godly character matters because of three things. It can make use, uh, it can make you sure of, it can make us sure of our salvation. That's the first thing. And, uh, and that was well developed there through scripture. It can make us fruitful in this lifetime. And, uh, and then it, it carries over into the next lifetime in terms of reward, in terms of what we're going to be doing. Uh, because uh, what the character that we develop here transfers in terms of what's going, what we're going to be doing in the next lifetime. Isn't that a motivation to get going? Amen? If that's going to affect my eternity, I want, I want to do something about it now. It's not just do whatever we like, and then when we get to heaven, we all start at zero again. Right? And that's what was developed in the first message. <clears throat> the second, uh, in the second message, we discovered that godly character requires God's work and what? My work. Exactly right. That was the whole theme of last message was that we've got to balance two things. And that's why we placed this particular series to follow immediately after the spiritual gifts. Because if you talk about the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and those kinds of things, those are the things that God is doing us in us to free us up and, make it, uh, and give us the ability to make the choices that we need in order to grow in character. But he leaves it up to us to actually make those choices. So he sets up the circumstances, a training school, uh, whatever you like. But take a look at Colossians 1.29. For this I toil. For this, wh- who toils? <laughs> now you know I was telling the truth. Very good. Obviously they were having problems back there with some of, this, some of the stuff. Those guys do a really good job back there. Thanks a lot, guys. For this I toil, who toils? I toil, struggling with, uh, struggling with all, whose energy? His energy that he powerfully works within me. So there's two aspects of it, all right? The spirit bears fruit in us and we are to crucify the flesh. Like a sports trainer, God sets up life training programs for us so that we can grow in these virtues. So, virtues. so we talk about some of the crisis God allows, some of the suffering that takes place. But then it goes into other various trials, and that includes things like accidents and challenges, like difficult people or being in a marriage. Did you know, have you ever done this? Uh, my, my wife and I do that every once in a while. You, you see somebody and you say, I wish that they would get married. And what you mean by that is it would do them a whole lot of good. Amen? Do you agree with me? Have you ever said what they need is a child? That would fix it. And if they have a child, they need three of them. And if that's not enough, they need a teenager. Amen? Oh, that would change it. So God allows these things in there, and he smiles. And then we go, oh, what a blessing. We got a little one. Yeah, God says, uh-huh. <laughs> yes. And I'm going to help you grow in character now. You're going to be like me. <laughs> and uh, unfair treatment and pressure of responsibilities and deadlines and those kinds of things. But we, so he sets up that training regimen for us. And it is, those are blessings. But it is up to us to do the training. He's the trainer, but we do the training. Amen? And that's, uh, that's how he does it. First Timothy says, rather train yourself for godliness. The character trait that we're going to look at today is humility. It's the first one we're beginning with. Interesting, uh, I'm not going to go there. First Peter chapter 5 says, all of you clothe yourself with humility. Before we look at what humility is, though, let's look at what it is not. We must be aware of false humility, lest we are deceived into thinking we have it when we don't. 
And that's why the first part, I'm going to spend a fair bit of time on it, because it's easy for us to think and trick ourselves into believing that we have something when we don't actually have it. Or we have a measure of it, but we could go a whole lot further. So let's start with what humility is not. And the first thing is, spiritual talk doesn't prove that you or I are humble. Spiritual talk doesn't prove you're humble. Watch out for false humility. Religious or spiritual talk. God, God told Moses to bring his people out of captivity. And Moses had been living in Midian for 40 years by then. He had no interest in interest in leading or anything like that. Look at his spiritual response. All right, here comes his spiritual response. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? I've never been eloquent. Oh, Lord, please send someone else who's much better at it than I. False humility. False humility. And we, and we sometimes see that in our church. Now, here's the problem with spiritual talk. You can't, you can't judge it in somebody else. You can only judge it in yourself. Because the same thing can be said, and it is not false humility. You say, well, then you're judging Moses right now. Yes, I am. And the reason is because I have good reason to. But you can't, you can't look at your neighbor and say, uh, when they say, uh, I'm not eloquent, you can't say, that's false humil- humility. It may or it may not. But that's the problem with spiritual talk. Proud people can talk spiritually. In fact, they talk spiritually more than anybody. They can't ever tell a joke or anything. It's so spiritual. Okay? False humility. We've got to be careful with it. But let's uh, take a look at uh, Moses again. His response... Response sounds humble, sounds spiritual, but the next verse reveals the true nature of the response. It says, Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. God never gets angry at humble people, He only gets upset with proud people. He was very angry with Moses. And why was that? Because Moses <clears throat> was exalting himself in three ways. Number one, he was saying, I'm smarter than God. He's saying, I know better than God what I should be doing and what I should not be doing. God says, you go. Number two, he was relying on self. His objections came from his feelings of inadequacy. But, if, but here's the point. If God could give a donkey the words to say, surely he could give Moses something to say. Amen? <laughs> and God's point, God is saying, the point is not who you are. This isn't about you. The point is who I am. Do you see that? And so the, the, the question isn't whether you're eloquent or anything like that. You may, you may be stating it correctly. Perhaps Moses was correct in his assessment that he wasn't eloquent. But that wasn't the point. The point is it doesn't matter if he's eloquent or not. All that matters is that what? God said it. Amen. (laughs) That's all that matters. If God says it, then we must do it. That's why listening and hearing God is so vitally important. We keep saying that, right? Number three, he was thinking only of himself. God wanted to deliver two million people. I mean, he cared about two million people, and Moses is focusing on his desire, and that was just one person. That was where his focus was. He was proud. He didn't care about the rest. And God wanted him to focus on that. So that's not humility. That's pride in disguise. But it sure sounds spiritual. Amen? Oh, look out for spiritual talk. It'll catch you every time. There was a, uh, some time, a long time ago, there was a couple who said to Fran and I, and uh, they'd started attending the church, and they said, you are our pastors... And we're going to submit to you. And that lasted exactly as long as it took for me to speak on something they didn't agree with. And then they, and then they uh, uh, jolted. And they rebelled. It was just spiritual talk. It was just false humility. In fact, I get a little worried when somebody says they ha- that they're going to submit to me. 
Uh, it makes me a little worried why they have to tell me that. <laughs> why do you have to tell me that? Just do it. Amen? <laughs> All right. So that's just spiritual talk. Secondly, uh, here's another uh, thing that we have to be careful about this matter of, uh, of humility and what it isn't. Lowly station, a lowly station in life doesn't mean that you're humble. So back to Moses, we see that Moses didn't start off humble. He didn't have a very good start that way in the area of humility. Amen? That's okay, because you're going to discover that I'm not criticizing. How would you have liked to be Moses way back there and for millennia, you know, thousands of years later, people are always talking, talking about you negatively? But anyway, so I'm glad I'm at toward the end of time and not at the beginning. But look at what is said of him later on. In Numbers 12, it says, Now Moses was more what? Than any other person on earth. This was said of Moses after he was in leadership. This is very important. So then he was proud when he had no position and humble when he had high position. What that means is sometimes people think that people who are humble are people of low station in life. That has nothing to do with being humble. You can have a low station in life and be the proudest individual in the world. And you can have the highest position in the world and be completely an individual of humility. Our problem is we don't get what humility is. Amen? So we've got to get these things out of our, out of our minds. So then lowly position has nothing to do with humility. Isn't it encouraging, however, just before we move on, that you can actually grow in humility? I mean, the Bible says Moses was known for his humility. He was the most humble man on earth at the time. And he wasn't before. Aren't you glad that if you're, like, in this area that you can grow in this? Amen? Amen. All right. Number three, spiritual gifts don't prove that I'm humble. We've read this passage back in the other series, but here it goes again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and... If I have the gift of prophecy, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, I, all those wonderful gifts, but if, but if I don't have love, I am what? Nothing. Nothing, we said, correct? Some prophetic people, as an example, believe that because they get a word from the Lord, they must be special. They must be special. <laughs> and so they walk around a little bit like that, you know? And they don't want to submit to church leaders. All the rest of us have to submit, but they don't. Because after all, they got a word from God. That must mean they're special. God wouldn't give them a word if they weren't special. That's the reasoning, right? But there's a warning in this. <clears throat> there's a great prophet in... Uh, Numbers 23 to 24, chapters number 23 to 24. And a great prophet, by, by that I mean he was very, very gifted. He wasn't so great in character. His name was Balaam. He prophesied, now think about this, he prophesied oracles about an entire nation and he even prophesied about a star, which was, he's talking about Messiah, that would arise out of Jacob and that his scepter will one day crush hostile nations. Now, I don't know anybody in our church that's getting anywhere close to those kind of prophecies. Those are not only national prophecies, those are earth-shattering prophecies. I mean, I don't know any, I mean, we're, we're barely <laughs> seeing prophecies be beyond individuals and a little bit with the church, and that's about it. I mean, he had quite a gift, wouldn't you agree? And look at what the scriptures say about Balaam, this great, greatly gifted prophet. In 2 Peter 2.15, and you could go to Jude and you can go to Revelation and it says something very similar to this. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of who? Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. You know, just, because, just because you're gifted doesn't mean that you got great fruit in your life. And that I have great fruit in my life. Giftedness is something you did nothing for. You, you did nothing to get it. Amen? 
I mean, it was just God just deemed in, in eternity past, he said, I'm going to give you that, that gift, and you better steward it well. And some are given one talent, and some are given five, and some are given ten, and he, and he expects a double return on all of them. Amen? It has nothing to do with that. Fruit, on the other hand, has a lot to do with you and I. Character has a lot to do with you and I. All right? Here's, uh, so spiritual gifts don't make you humble. Here, true humility may be mistaken for boasting. <clears throat> Some would say that boasting is prideful and wrong. It may be, but it needn't be. Boasting may be pr- proud, proudful or pride, but it needn't be. Psalm 44 says, in God we make our what? Boast all day long. Speaking of Moses again, he, he boasted about God's exploits and bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. Paul boasted about the people that were growing in the, in the churches and that type of thing. And when we tell, and, and, and I want to say this, I think this is really important. Because sometimes I feel very uncomfortable when I do it here at Southland. And I shouldn't feel uncomfortable. But I know that sometimes people misread or misjudge what I'm doing. Here at Southland, we often, I often go back and I rehearse the stories. And I'll keep rehearsing the stories because we must rehearse the stories. We must never lose sight of where we were and where we are. That's why I journal extensively. I have lots of information. And, but can it be told in a prideful way? Sure. Can the motivation be pride? Uh, pride? Absolutely. But we should be boasting in what the Lord has done. He's done great things for us. A church like ours, 150 people, and uh, $400,000 in debt, about two-thirds of the building still left to be paid, and all the programs shut and just about had to lock the door to what we are now. That's amazing. And what, what really amazes me is how people have actually changed. It's not just the number of people, but the quality of the people. I'm talking about it behind the scenes all the time. I can't believe the hunger and the thirsting I'm seeing for spiritual things. Those retreats are just turning into some. It's unbelievable. It's like many revivals going on when we go over there now. It's just stepped up to incredible levels. This last one, this last weekend, I could not believe it. God is doing amazing things. And we're going to keep boasting about it. Amen? In fact, not to boast, now I'm going to flip it the other way, about what he has done may actually be a sign of pride. I'll show you how it works. I learned that principle on Crescent Beach in uh, White Rock. I was over there and... and, uh, as you know, I'm not going to tell that whole story, but as you know, I, I, I wasn't telling the church that I was following the Holy Spirit and the way I was listening and the way I'd been doing it. I couldn't use those kinds of words in those days. And so I was just doing it quietly, and I would listen to him, and he would introduce and tell me what to do, and I would practice those things, and amazing things would happen. Then I was on Crescent Beach, and the Holy Spirit said, now you go back and you tell them about me. And I said, I can't. Now that was Pride. I said, I can't. Why? Because I might lose my job. That's humility. (laughs) Or the church might split, like I was really concerned. And the Holy Spirit, and I said, why do I have to do that? Like, why why are you pushing this? This has been working in secret. Very good. (laughs) And then the Holy Spirit said this to me, the people think you must you must be an amazing leader to get these results. Now they need to know who's leading you. And it's me, is what he said. See, sometimes silence and being quiet is the, the thing that's the proud thing. Oh, we, we got this all mixed up, this thing about humility. We, sometimes what we think is humility isn't and, and vice versa, right? Uh, another um, uh, another uh, man, a marketplace leader, uh, some time ago said to me, uh, I, I started inquiring about 
about his business interests and some, some of the things that he was doing. And he said, I feel very uncomfortable talking about my business. I just never talk about it. And, it, and, it, and the way he, what he meant by that was this is spiritual talk. That was, that was a spiritual response. That's not a spiritual response. You and I haven't made anything. Did you know that? Everything that we have and everything that we've ever accomplished is totally and completely just because of him. And the minute we, the minute we get it in our head, we'll realize that we need to boast about what he's done. Tell him about how that happened. I mean, uh, you know, I, could, <clears throat> I can tell a story about when I was flying and uh, I flew a 185 on floats. And, and it took the, the last guy who was in, I was in line for, I was number seven. I was number seven in line. And the guy ahead, of, the, the, the guy who had just got on a 185, it had taken him over a year to get on a little 185 on floats to fly. And then you had to gradually work your way through all these floats and everything. And finally, you would get on a DC-3 and you'd go in the right seat. It would take you years to do that. I got in there in about eight months. And I passed all the other guys. Isn't that amazing what I did? <laughs> Pretty amazing, eh? Now you want to hear the rest of the story? Yes. I'll tell you anyway. <laughs> uh, Barney Lamb was sitting in an office, and I walked by. He had just taken over the company where I was. And, uh, and, uh, and Fran's uncle from from Alberta, he said, uh, he said, if you ever meet a guy by the name of, and he flies uh, business jets uh, out of Calgary, and he said, if you, ever, if you ever meet a man by the name of Barney Lamb, that's who I started with, give him my name. So I walked by this office and, and, uh, and said hello to him, and I walked in, and, I, and, and he, he asked me who I was and that kind of stuff, and I said, do you know a man by the name of John Brown? And he said, which John Brown? So I told him, and he said, you know him? And I said, yes. Uh, who is he? Well, he's an uncle of mine. He said, well, why don't you just phone that uncle of yours and get him to call me? It was his way of testing me. And I got in a vehicle, and I drove back, I, I drove back into town really fast, asked Fran where he was at that time, and uh, I phoned him up in Calgary, and I said, he's, I, said, I said, Barney Lamb is sitting at this phone number right now. Please phone him and say something nice about him, <laughs> about me. And so I backed off the yard. And by the way, I stole his truck to go do this. <laughs> it had the keys in it, and it was running. And I drove as fast as I could back to the airport and uh, left it running. And then I walked back into the, the, into the area where he was uh, near the offices, and I just, and I walked right by his office, and, and, and he said, well, 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 who do we have here? I just talked to him 15 minutes earlier. And I said, oh, Mr. Lamb. And he's, he's grinning from ear to ear, and he said, you'll never believe who just phoned me. <laughs> and I said, who? <laughs> and he said, come on and sit down. He took a chair behind the desk, and he said, sit down over here. He put his hand on my knee, and he said, I promised your uncle, he had already talked to him, uh, that I would get you on a DC-3 right now. And I jumped right past all those guys. You know who did that? Not me. Amen? It's God who does these things. Amen? And we need to boast in that. And say, isn't God amazing? I didn't get that position because I was better. There were probably a list of guys that were way better, more qualified. But God just decides. And that's really neat. Listen, 1 Corinthians, Paul said, what, you, what do you have that you were not given? Amen? Yeah. Your silence may be an indication of pride because its motivation is that you've never considered that God had anything to do with your life. You are a self-made person is what you think. Take care not to judge another's pride, though, based on their boast or silence because we don't have that ability 
But this is for our own self-examination. Here's another one. True humility may be mistaken for arrogance. David, as, as his, at his father's request, visited his older brothers who were in battle against the Philistines. He arrived and noticed that all the soldiers, including his brothers, in a strange, they were in a strange new battle position. They were hiding behind the rocks because they were afraid of Goliath. You remember the story? David asked the men in no, in no sheepish tone, he said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This infuriated his oldest brother Eliab, who snapped back at David. And this is what he said, What are you doing around here anyway? What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Now David shook off this verbal assault and rushed forward with confidence to fell the mighty giant with one stone. Now, let me ask you this question. His brother said he was proud and conceited. Was he proud? Was he arrogant? Was he conceited? No, he was not. Often the truly humble are mistaken for being arrogant because they appear confident. God had something to say about David. Uh, and this was, this was God's opinion. He said, I found a man, uh, the son of Je- Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. He was confident in doing his will, and later we'll see why. Shyness, bashfulness, lack of confidence, insecurity, low self-esteem, being a passive doormat, putting yourself down, are not Humility. They are weaknesses that you need to be set free from. And I've been set free from many of that on that list. So I'm not pointing at you. I'm, I, I understand this one. You need to be set free from and delivered. Amen? So that you can be confident in listening to what God says and then go and do it. So, then what is humility? <laughs> we just about knocked out our whole definition understanding of humility. So what is it? Number one, humility is obedience. Philippians says, And being found in human form, he, that's Jesus, humbled himself by becoming, what? Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself and became obedient. You want to be a humble person? You've got to be obedient. Now, how does one become humble? Through obedience. God promises plans for the future, showing us where we're to go. These promises create a desire in us. In our hearts, we glimpse where he's taking us, and our understanding determines a logical path to follow. However, quite often, he will lead us in a direction that appears completely opposite of logic. Has that ever happened to you? It just doesn't make any sense. True humility acknowledges God's wisdom even when it doesn't make sense and we don't understand. And I bet this next verse is one of the first verses I ever memorized. But it's one of the most important in the Bible. If you get this one, you can probably make it. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. God promised Abram that he would become the father of many nations. Abram had waited many years. He was 100 years old when he finally had Isaac. Now he could glimpse at the promises of being father of a multitude. But then God changed it all one night telling Abram to journey to a mountain and sacrifice the the one son that he had. It made no sense. There was no logic behind it from a human standpoint. Yet out of humility, Abram chose to obey even when he didn't understand. Now, we don't get to a level of obedience and humility that Abraham achieved in one step. I mean, that's a pretty big one, right? Is that big or is it big? Is it big? Yeah, it's big. You don't, you don't jump from no humility like, like Moses had there and you jump straight to that one. No, that's not going to happen. You get there by, by with, God sets up a regiment plan with lots of trials and issues in your life that are much, much smaller, and he keeps trying you, and you keep moving on till one day he can test you in something large, and we'll see in a moment why. And as you make decisions 
and choices, they get easier to make. And it started with Abraham, it started way at the beginning when God said, I want you to leave the, leave the land of your forefathers and go to a land that I'm going to show you. That's where, it's, that's where that training started. All right? So number two, humility is complete dependence on God. Isaiah 66 says, the people I treasure most are the... Are they humble? They depend only on me and tremble when I speak. Remember, David appeared to be arrogant. Back to that story. Yet he knew his ability came from God. See what he tells King Saul. He says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That's why. He had been practicing humility behind, back in the sticks. With animals. And now God put him up on a public stage with this big Goliath, this fearful Goliath, giant. And he said, now you take him on. Well, he had been practicing obedience and humility and dependence on God for so long that by the time he got there, it was second nature. It was just automatic. He knew exactly what to do. And we, we won't go into automatic correct responses if we don't if we don't get the training right and if we don't make the right choices along the way right so a key and and a key expression of such humble dependence is prayer when daniel came across jeremiah's prophecy and wanted understanding an angel was dispatched see what he said to daniel he said fear not daniel for the for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and Humbled yourself, say it all with me. Humbled yourself before your God. Your words have been heard and I've come because of your words. And then number three, humility puts others' interests first. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So as a result... Uh, he was able to, he was willing to pay a steep price in order to bring the God, Paul, I'm speaking of now, in order to bring the gospel to others and to have them grow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and listen, you know, people, people who are willing to pay a steep price are humble people. They pay a steep price because they have put others ahead others' interests ahead of them, themselves. So in 2 Corinthians 11, for example, uh, Paul talks about being imprisoned many, many times. Five times he received 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, one stone left for dead, three shipwrecks, often gone without food, in danger of bandits and emperors, and so on and so forth. And uh, Why? He says... Be, and then he gives us the reason. In, another, in verse 28, he said, Beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That was his interest. Their interest. It wasn't self-interest. It was their interest. And so humility, is, that is what humility is. So humility is, depending, is complete dependence on God. And humility is obedience, and humility puts others' interests first. That's a very quick uh, summary of what humility truly is, all right? Now, let's finish it off with this last question. Why do we need humility? Why do we need it anyway? Some of you might be thinking, well, that's all great, nice talk, um, but, but I really don't need it. I really don't want it. Pride is just uh, fine with me. In fact, in ancient... Greece and Rome, Aristotle, who was a Greek philosopher, he, uh, he believed in this matter of the virtues, which we call character traits here. And he had a list of four that he, were the, he thought were the top, and all the rest hung and hinged on those four. And uh, none of them included the top three, uh, the top few that the Christian faith does, but it included the character traits that, that we have, like uh, things like uh, temperance and prudence and justice and courage. Those were the top four. Nowhere in his list is there such a thing as humility. The ancient pagans despised humility. In fact, they would write, they would write about their accomplishments. Em emperors would write their accomplishments in stone so that wherever you walked, you would see what they had done. And um, 
I, I suspect that modern pagans don't have much use for humility either. So what is it good for? Number one, God gives understanding to the humble. Many think that the key to understanding the Bible lies in our minds. Know the original languages, the historical backgrounds of the Bible. You know, just, just really study, study, study. And studying is important, but that's intellectual pride. And the mind does have a role to play, but it is not. Listen to me carefully now, and, and we believe in studying here, trust me. It is not the chief role. To understand God's word, the chief role is not the use of the mind. It's the use of the heart. And I can prove it in scripture. The key to interpreting all divine revelation is in the heart, not in the mind. The religious leaders studied the scriptures more than anybody. But they couldn't grasp that the scriptures were pointing to Jesus even when he stood right in front of them. Other people like Simeon and Anna, she was a widow, humble means, no formal training. She prayed and fasted uh, all her life, practically her whole adult life, into her 80s, until the Spirit told her who Messiah was, and he, it was just a baby. <laughs> and she could recognize that. Interesting, eh? But anyway, this is what Jesus said of, of the religious leaders who were very well schooled. You search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that I can give you this eternal life. Now, why? Because of the condition of their heart. And I could take you to several passages, but I'll just use this one because it's shorter. Oh, Father, <clears throat> Lord of heaven. This is Jesus speaking now. He's praying. He says, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding the truth from those who think themselves so wise and clever and for revealing it to the childlike. The heart is absolutely critical to understanding what God is trying to say to you. And if you're going to understand this book, and if I'm going to understand it, we need humility. Otherwise, he hides it. That's why, I mean, I've often, you know, for many years, I used to say, like, why couldn't it have been organized differently? Like, have a whole topic on humility and tell the stories in there and stuff, and we wouldn't have to kind of, like, find it, you know, and spend endless hours working on a message. It should just be all neatly done. That's what I do. Ah, no, God says, I'm not throwing my pearls to swine. Swine, he means he's talking about the heart, right? He's not, he doesn't just cast his pearls to the careless, to those that don't want him, that don't want the truth. And so uh, it's, the, it's the humble that receive it. Aren't you glad that you don't have to be totally smart? In order to hear God and get his direction. And you can, you, he can weave you through your life. And get you to the destination that he has for you. Aren't you glad? Tell somebody next to you that you're really glad. You don't have to be smart. <clears throat> it is the humble. Not the smart that God guides and teaches. Psalm 25 says he leads the humble in what is right. Teaching them his way. Here's the second reason you need humility. You want humility. God entrusts in assignments to the humble. When David was young, God allowed various trials in his life. For the most part, he was on the run from King Saul, his father-in-law. Now, that didn't make any sense to David at the time. He had already been anointed by the prophet Samuel. He wasn't trying to be the king, but hey, I was anointed. I'm hardly being treated like a king. Or a king-in-waiting, amen? Is that how you treat a king-in-waiting? You chase him for his life? And so his father-in-law turns around, and God sets it up and lets it happen. It was part of the training regiment. So that, that David, uh, that it, it, David's running for his life. There are times you read the Psalms, and when you're reading the Psalms, he just says, Oh God, just take my life already. I've had enough. He's just had enough. He's up to here. The pressure is intense. 
He's always on the lookout. He's always got one eye open when he's sleeping. And, and, and the guys that he's got around him aren't exactly the, the cream of the crop, eh? They're vagabonds and robbers and thieves. Like, they're misfits that don't belong in society. That's his army. Oh, great. And that's what God gives him. Oh, but God knew what he was doing. God's grinning up there. David doesn't know that this is a training regiment. And twice during that time, God tested him, giving David opportunity to kill his enemy in 1 Samuel 24. Do you remember? He's in, he and his men are way deep in a cave. And who comes along there and sets camp right at the mouth of the cave? Saul and his men. What are they, what are they there for? They're hunting for David. So during the night, they go to sleep, and God is now testing David's humility. And he he wants to see if he can trust him. Does he depend on God? Or does he take matters into his own hands? So this is a test, and he tests it on a bad man, (laughs) who's Saul. And so David creeps out there with his guys, and they look, and they go, Oh my goodness, it's Saul? And uh, one of the guys, Abishur, says, oh, no, Abishai, I mean, says, no problem, I'll, I'll get him right now. One strike, it's done. David says, no, no, oh, he's the Lord's anointed. No, 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 we can't do that. We can't do that. And so finally he goes and he cuts off a piece of the edge of the robe and takes it. And as he does that, he feels smitten inside that he shouldn't have even done that. And he goes, he passed the test. First Samuel 26, I believe it is. Yeah, 1 Samuel 26, two chapters later, Saul is chasing him again. Now they're out in the open uh, field, and, uh, and they make a camp. And, of course, the king's always right in the middle of him and all his, his guard around him. And God puts him in a deep sleep and gives David a second chance. Talk about temptation. Go in there, and his guys are saying, we'll, we'll, we'll make it clean. We'll make it clean, David, and you'll be the king. We can do this fast. No, he says, uh, take the water jug and his spear. That's it. Takes the water jug and the spear and he leaves. And he won't do it. And God's going up in heaven and he said, he passed it. That's just what I was looking for in a king. In other words, he won't take matters into his own hand. He will only listen to me. And listen, the more responsibility that God's going to give you, the more damage you can do. Amen? You know, you put a two-year-old on a trike, and if he crashes into the side of the house, not much damage. If you put that two-year-old behind a 3,000-pound car, there's going to be a lot of damage. Amen? And so the, the more responsibility, that's what happens. So, wow, God was gonna, uh, going to be able to trust David to lead a nation depending on God. Wow. The more people you lead and influence the more damage we can do, as I said. The Israelites, here's another example, were grumbling because they were without water again. So, and I'm, I'm going to show you what happens now. When it, I'm going to develop this just a little bit further. They're grumbling because they don't have water. They had grumbled before, and uh, Moses went and hit the rock, and water gushed out, and, uh, and they had their water. Now, it's later on, and they're out of water again, it's dry and thirsty. They're, you know, it's dry. They're very thirsty. They're grumbling again. Moses is exasperated by now. He's got these brats that he's leading. Two million brats. How'd you like to care for that many? And he's exasperated. And he goes to God and he says, ah, we need water. They're, they're just grumbling and they're going to stone me and all this kind of stuff. And so God says, uh, okay. Uh, this is what I want you to do. Go back to that rock, and I want you to speak to that rock. Okay, he goes back. Moses is so exasperated at this point. But instead of speaking to the rock, he hits the rock two times. Now, take a look what God says to Moses and Aaron when he hit the rock two times. He said, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. God, I mean, are you kidding me? This is Moses, a good guy. He didn't want the job in the first place. And now all he does is hit it instead of speaking to it. Big deal. It was a very big deal. 
You say, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Yes, it did fit the crime. Because this is what happened. The people knew what God had told Moses. Evidently, they knew it from what this passage says. And they're watching him, and they're looking at their leader and saying, well, look at that. He can get away with a little bit of disobedience. That's not a lot of disobedience, just a wee bit. So that's all we're going to do. But there's millions of us, and we're all going to do it. Do you see how that one little thing now multiplies millions of times? That's why God is so upset. That's why he's testing David. That's why he's testing Moses. That's why he's testing us. He wants to give us increased responsibilities and assignments for the kingdom. But we have to pass some tests in humility so that we'll depend on him totally and obey only him so that we don't screw it all up. Right? That's why it's so important. Wow. So God had to, uh, I mean, his one sin would condone the sins of millions now. So God needed to make a public example of Moses and, and Aaron. I'm sure he wasn't glad about doing it either. He loved Moses. But, there, but he had to make a public example that there is consequence for deliberate disobedience. And the bigger the assignment from, that God gives you and I, the greater the humility that is required. Do you see that? And you don't learn it in one step. Many choices along the way. Well, here's the final reason that we need it. I'm sure there's many others, but that's all we got time for. God dwells with the humble. Scripture says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But look at what precedes and follows that amazing invitation. It says, God resists the proud. He does not dwell with them. They don't experience him. They don't hear his voice. No, they don't. But gives grace to the humble. Then he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Lift you up to where? Well, Isaiah 57 says that it's where God dwells. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God doesn't just want to have a little visitation with you. You know, a little experience here or there. No, he wants to dwell with you and me. Not just at a retreat, amen? He wants to dwell with you in the morning and in the evening and during the day. Isn't that a fortunate thing? Aren't we a lucky people that he actually yearns for that? Some people sometimes say, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. I can never hear God and I just don't experience his presence. I'm sure there's, a mo- I'm sure there's many different reasons for that. Sometimes it's just little things. That, you know, sometimes we just sit down with him and said, oh, you didn't understand, but that was him speaking there. Oh, I didn't know it. But sometimes people don't experience him and don't hear him because they're proud. And so God just doesn't draw near. And you can do all, you can go to all the hearing God seminars and go to retreats and everything else, and it won't change a thing until we do that wonderful thing and lower ourselves beneath him. Amen? And then we experience his presence. Oh my. You know, there was a, there's a person at the, uh, a couple that was at the retreat this last week. I won't give their names. I didn't ask if I could give their names. So this was their third retreat. Uh, Empower, that is. The fifth retreat, but their third, their third Empower. And when I saw them walking in, again, I, what are you, I, said, I called them by name. And I said, what are you doing here? I did that. And, uh, and really, I was complimenting them. But I said, what are you doing here? They said, We just want to learn all we can. We're just hungry for more. I said, wow, okay, that's that's really neat. You know, they got to the last uh, session, session six, on Sunday. And uh, it was the the session on tongues. And it's not a weird session for those of you that haven't been there. You'd You'd be surprised. 
And, uh, and I'm just looking over the group as they're all in their own little places, all scattered around the room. And I notice some of them are weeping quietly and the music's playing. And uh, some of them have just received a gift of tongues or something like that, spiritual languages. And I, and I notice this couple. They're in the same area, not quite together, but in the same area. And he's got his hanky and he's pulling it out and he's just wiping it, puts it back in, pulls it out and he wipes it again. Every time I look, he's wiping I I couldn't resist. I never do this, but it was still going. I walked right over to him, put my arm around him, and I said, did God just give you this gift of spiritual languages? And he said, yes. And I really sense his presence. Now, this was his third empower. Didn't get it on the other two. Now he got it. I think God just finally said, I love the humility in this guy. I think I'm just going to give him that gift. I think I'm just going to give him it. And I'm just going to visit him with a present. And she went, me too, me too. She had just received it then too. God is good, isn't he? This is what I'd like, you, this is what I'd like to challenge you in doing. I've, start, I've kicked off the first of the character traits. We're not going to be able to cover them all in this series. However, this is what I did with my marketplace leaders back uh, on Wednesday morning, I, we wrote a whole list of them on the whiteboard, and then we did some listening prayer, and I asked them to ask the Holy Spirit to show or reveal to them which one they should pick as one they should begin to grow in this summer. And then I asked them to write it down in their journals and to begin to learn and to pray about and to study that characteristic all summer long, together with the reading plan, the 90-day reading plan. And that's what we're doing. And I'd, I'd like to challenge you to do the same thing. I've done it. I've, uh, I've picked out two character traits. Fran thinks I should have six on there, but <laughs> I'm going with two. And I'm saying, God, I really want to grow in this. I want to grow more like you in this. Father, thank you for this wonderful time together with this wonderful church family. I just pray that you place in us a deeper and deeper hunger and thirst for you and for the things that are important to you. And I pray that this summer, (laughs) far from being a time of slowing up and kind of skidding to a stop spiritually, even though the routines aren't the same and we're on vacations I pray that this summer would be marked by a a couple of months in which we radically moved ahead in spiritual growth in this matter of our character. Oh God, put that desire in us. In Jesus' name, amen.